Our methods work every time, 90% of the time. Before we get into today's show, let's take a moment to talk about why we're here. Kale and I like to use these table topic episodes to share some of the experience that we have gleaned from our many years of playing tabletop RPGs. We understand that the advice we give and the opinions we share may not be applicable at every table every time, but there is one piece of advice that we feel is pretty universal, and that's the motto of our show, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. So no matter what game you play, what system or edition, or what rules you use, don't use, or misuse, if you're having fun, then you're doing it right. And with that out of the way, on to the show. Welcome to Table Topics, the general advice and discussion podcast from the RPG Academy. I am Michael, and I have brought along with me, as I always do, my favorite co-host and yours, the Caleb G. Caleb, how are you doing this fine morning, sir? I'm doing quite well, Michael. How about you? Fine and dandy as usual. We are going to get right into today's episode, and this is the second part of our reskinning episode. So this will be Table Topics 85. We begin last episode with uh, the background class combination. We are going to bookend the reskinning conversation with bringing that back at the usual place at the end of the show. And we also have a new iTunes review to read. So Caleb, kind of refresh us on where we're at in this whole reskinning conversation. Okay, so last time we were talking about reskinning classes and monsters, kind of different ways and strategies that you can alter the flavor of what's in the book just to make your game more interesting, more exciting, or even shift it to a different genre uh, or different setting. Uh, today, we are going to continue that conversation, and we're going to talk about how to reskin a monster into an environmental challenge, or maybe even a trap. Now, this is a little bit more rewriting than reskinning. Uh, I think we're going to find out as we dig into this conversation that doing this does require we mess around with some numbers and some abilities a little bit, but it still really does fit within this same general topic that we're talking about. We both have brought to the table some examples that we made, and we're going to share both of those, or I should say we're both going to share those. I think you have more than I do, uh, because as we all know, I'm lazy. So how about we start with yours, we'll do mine in the middle, and then we'll wrap up with yours, because they're honestly probably better. And I'm going to bet they're actually really similar, because I think we both did the beholder, even though I told you not to. <laughs> well, of course, I never listened to you. Why would I start now? Exactly. Okay, so. One of the first ones I made, I tried to keep it really, really super simple. Uh, so I grabbed the Shambling Mound monster out of the monster manual. And I said, okay, so here's a monster that looks like a tree kind of thing and wanders around and attacks you. 
How do we make this into a trap or an environmental danger? Well, we leave it exactly like it is, and we just make it not move. And that's pretty much it. So instead of being a monster that walks around, this is a set piece that your players can stumble into. Um, you don't have to change the hit points, the stats, any of the attacks. They're all very simple. What you really do have to change is the flavor of the interaction. So instead of just describing the slam attack as the big arm of the shambling mound rears back and punches the fighter in the face, you could describe it as a vine lurching up from the ground or swinging down from a tree. You could even say the ground shifts and moves and tries to knock a PC off his or her feet. So the flavor here is more important than the mechanics. So well, I want to jump in there because that is kind of similar to some of the things that I've done. And for me, what I did is I turned the attacks into saving throws. So rather than having the creature attack, now since it's an environmental effect or a trap, there's a saving throw to uh, negate or have the effect. Is that what you're doing? Yeah, that's a really good way to do it. Uh, I think you could do both if you wanted to. You could incorporate either or into this idea. I would say if you were incorporating the saving throw concept, you might describe that as the ground shaking or a tree falling or you don't even have to make this a magical trap, really. You could use the statistics and say you're walking into an area full of traps set in the forest by unknown assailants. So instead of saying there's a magical monster trying to kill you and you walked on top of it, you could literally stretch this out as the PCs are walking through the woods. And you could use the hit points, quote unquote, as a kind of a meter for how long it takes to get through this trapped area. So instead of saying the the creature is attacking you, a tree falls because you tripped the tripwire. Or it, it's the classic two logs swinging down from either end of the path to smash you in the face kind of thing. The rope trap, the spiked woods trap, it's all in there. The one thing I've thought of for all of these ideas, and this is something we can debate about, and I hope listeners respond a little bit as well, is that when we're talking about taking a monster and making it a trap or a, a, an environmental setting, there's not always something to hit. So how do the PCs overcome the obstacle? Because normally we look at a monster with hit points, and when it's dead, it's dead, and you're done. So the idea I have, and I haven't tested this yet, it's completely theoretical at this point, is when a PC uses a skill to overcome the obstacle that the monster trap is providing, we assign damage, quote-unquote, to what the PC has done. And I've theoretically estimated 1d10 plus the relevant skill modifier. And since we're talking 4th edition, I'm sorry, since we're talking 5th edition, if you are proficient in that skill, then you also get your proficiency bonus. So essentially, if a tree is falling and I'm going to roll acrobatics to get out of the way, if I successfully make that check, I then do a d10 plus dex damage. And if I'm proficient in acrobatics, I add my proficiency modifier. 
I'm not actually punching anything, I'm not doing any damage, but it is a way to translate my success into a way to count down that hit point meter for when the trap or environment is beaten. Yeah, that was one of the things that I, I won't say struggled with, but I, I, I had a couple of different options and I ended up going differently than you did. I find that kind of interesting that uh, obviously we're going to provide a couple of different avenues that people can try. A mind like yours is completely untested. It's all just, ah, we'll see if this works. So it could be terribly bad or broken or awesome. Hopefully someone will try it. I, I actually plan on doing this something similar myself soon. So I'll let people know how it worked out for me. Uh, but did, again, I'm just not, I guess I'm not surprised that we approach it from two different ways. Yeah, not at all. We, we tend to come at these kind of creative solutions very differently. I, I felt on one hand, it was a little too complex because I wanted a, a very simple solution. If I overcome the difficulty my one role also defines the, quote, damage. But then I, I realized, well, if I'm attacking a monster, I make an attack roll and a damage roll. I'm doing the same thing. It's just I'm doing a skill check and then a skill damage. Or we, we could make up a, a different name for that. You know, it's not really a damage or an attack. It's a, a skill overcome something. None of those words make sense, so whatever. All right. Do you have another one you would like to share, or do you want me to do with mine? Uh, no, I'll throw another one out there. So I also looked at the Storm Giant out of the Monster Manual, and I thought with the Storm Giant, you could very easily make this a magical storm, or just a regular storm, that the PCs are fighting their way through. I think one of the most difficult aspects of running a D&D &D or any role-playing game is that environmental challenges and effects can be really difficult to deal with. Uh, I remember in older D&D &D editions, there were pages and pages of how to have a storm happen and how it impacts accuracy for ranged attacks and spells and endurance checks and con checks. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure back in 3.5, there were even... Uh, source books about environments and the entire source book was here's how to deal with the desert and heat effects and starvation and thirst and things like that and a lot of times in my own games I've ended up just hand waving that kind of stuff if there's a storm it's raining you're wet oh no deal with it there's no real challenge there and I think a lot of times when we're talking about how to make the game feel organic and real and reinforce that mood of role-playing, we're missing that part of the environment. So if we make a storm a really dangerous thing to deal with, it's going to help players really feel the realness of the world. So that being said, <clears throat> I took the storm giant and said, okay, instead of a giant, it's a storm. Done. Perhaps a giant storm? I hope you edit that out. Oh, no. I know. Uh, so, um, basically, the storm giant had a couple different attacks. It had a lightning strike. Let's just keep that as a lightning strike. Not make that more difficult than it has to be. Uh, the storm giant has a rock throw. 
okay, that doesn't make as much sense with a rainstorm. What if we say it's hailing? So hail damage instead of a rock is being thrown at you. The storm giant also has a great sword attack. That one is kind of hard. We could say it's sleet or ice or more hail, but then we're kind of duplicating two regular attack rolls. We could say that it's raining so hard that you simply take damage from the impact of the rain. Maybe if you're not protecting yourself, the rain is actually physically hurting you. And I, I think we can also say that in 5th edition, we don't really always define hit points as damage. It's more endurance. So we could also say that the, quote, greatsword attack is representing the struggle your PC has to fight through the rain and the wind. So that attack becomes a little more vague, and if you take damage from that attack, you're losing your endurance, reflected as hit points. I think that's perfectly fine and makes a lot of sense. As long as everyone's on board with that, because sometimes I think even with 5th edition, players walk into it with that mindset of hit points equals blood loss. Which it can. There's nothing wrong with that as long as everyone's on board with that. If everyone is of the mindset that, okay, hit points is more endurance and we have to think of health as more of a I can keep fighting until I get that one last hit that actually kills me kind of thing, then looking at this storm attack as an endurance attack makes more sense. The one feature I couldn't figure out is that the storm giant has spells he casts. So, the easy solution is to just not do it. And maybe we lower the CR a little bit, or lower the XP, because we've taken away that part of the monster. If you can figure out a way to incorporate spells, please, throw it out there. Okay, so this magical storm is happening in the ruins of an ancient magical city, and all these magical trinkets are being blown around, and occasionally they randomly fire. Hey, we figured it out. Yay! Woohoo! Or you could even go a little bit crazier and say, okay, you're fighting through this storm. Out of nowhere, you get hit with an attack spell. And you don't even say why. So there's a mystery now. Maybe it is just a trinket. Maybe it's uh, an ancient protection rune that got triggered. Maybe it's a trap. Maybe they're uh, going through the ruins of a castle and they actually hit a, a trap rune or something, like explosive runes or whatnot. Maybe you throw it in that there's an actual wizard attacking them, and you just use these spells. I mean, you could really do anything. It's Galactus as a giant space cloud. Oh, now I'm sad. That was horrible. <laughs> it was. It was really bad. So I, I think the we still have to discuss how the PCs get through this storm. I think my idea still works, whenever you creatively use a skill on your turn, we roll the skill damage, which a d10 plus relevant stat plus proficiency, if it applies, because you can't attack a storm. Now, you can defend against the hail, and that's the hail attack or the endurance attack from the rain or the lightning, but to get through this storm and survive... I think translating skill usage into skill damage and the hit points of the giant as the success track makes a lot of sense to me and the way I run a game. Yeah, you know, I find it just funny the 
that you're using D10 plus because that that is like a mirror world symmetry to what I did, which I'll just jump in here and explain that part. What I did is I took the hit points of the creature that I was using. I divided it by 10. And then that is how many successes above the base number you need on your skill check. So for example, one of mine was 140 hit points. So that became 14. I set the DC for the skill challenge at 13. So if our first person who rolls a skill challenge gets a 16, that would be three successes above what they needed. So now they would only need 11. Interesting. So you are still, you still use the hit points to create a success track. Yes. Which makes sense because we're translating a monster into an effect or a situation. So we're both still using hit points to say how long it takes to beat this thing. Correct. Yep. So you did D10 damage. I'm doing divided by 10 skill checks. I mean, I I would bet that over a long term, those are going to be eerily similar. I think so. Especially because in 5th edition, a lot of the monsters have a lot of hit points. So that's why I went with a D10 because I felt a creative and narrative use of a skill of how the fighter dodges through the rain or the rogue ducks underneath something is worth that extra damage. The one thing about yours that I think might need a little bit of fine-tuning is that you're essentially saying for every six, for every number over the DC, you get an extra success. I perceive that as being a little bit of a difference than a regular skill check. So it might be a little confusing to players who aren't used to this. Because in general, if I make a skill check, if I beat it by 1, if I beat it by 10, it doesn't matter. Now I can narratively say, oh, I beat it so well, this also happens. Right, and all, all I'm doing there is that would probably be more behind the scenes. Like, I don't know that the players would be able to see that. I would simply say, okay, you're trying to dodge or this or that or that. Roll your skill challenge. Okay, you got a 14. I would narrate their ability or allow them to narrate their ability to, uh, uh, you know, progress. But then I would just tally, okay, that's two check marks. They need 14 check marks to get through this challenge. That's two. And then just sort of keep track of it that way. Okay, that makes more sense. I like that. That that makes the the method flow a little bit better. That feels a little bit like uh, the fate concept when we take the fractal rule and make a, a stress track for the environment or the challenge. Yep, that was in my head. Um, I'm not familiar enough with those rules to have quoted them exactly, but I remember from our Fae uh, Deadlands game, when we went through the desert, that was definitely in my mind when I was creating it. And I, th- I think that is a good method to borrow for this example that we're talking about here. If someone's not familiar with that, can you give them a brief rundown of what that is? Uh, well, I have only barely more knowledge than you do about this, because as much as I love Fate, I'm pretty bad at writing the mechanics of it. Essentially, Fate Fractal, or the Fate Golden Rule, says that you can take any sort of environmental challenge, whether it's a storm, a desert a fortress that you're fighting through and make it a defined creature with aspects and stress tracks. And instead of punching a bad guy in the face, when you roll your skill, you are knocking out the stress tracks of the environment. And when you defeat the stress tracks, you have survived the environment. So essentially that is what we are doing here, turning a monster into an effect. We are 
using fractal rules from Fade, but we're just cramming them into D&D 5e. Exactly. And interestingly, as I have been working with 5e more and more, while there are a lot of the foundational components from 4th edition, I'm also kind of translating it a lot into Fate, especially with backgrounds and things like that. One of the house rules I use in my own 5e games is that when uh, in, instead of granting inspiration from just cool role-playing, I tie it back to your backgrounds and kind of make it like invoking the aspect. If you can invoke your background and just describe why it applies, you can use the inspiration for a reroll. So there's a lot of similarities there, and I think that's why using this fractal hack of a monster into an environment works. So all of that out of the way, why don't we look at one of your monsters that you have converted? Okay, so I'll basically just kind of do the same thing that you did. Uh, I'll do my uh, monster as an environmental effect just because it's similar, but we can compare and contrast. So uh, essentially, I took the young bronze dragon, which uses a lightning attack because I wanted my environmental effect to be a lightning storm. It has 142 hit points. I divided that by 10 and rounded that basically to you needed 14 successes above the skill challenge rating, which I put at 13. Again, this is where the math has no testing. This is just me kind of doing some quick Michael averages. I know with bounded accuracy, you're not likely to get a skill check of like a 27 that you would have in like a 3.5 or a Pathfinder game. So I would expect that a good result would be like around 18. So I'm thinking that like five ticks is probably the most that anyone's going to get in one go. Obviously, you could get a natural 20. You could make that different. But again, I'm just doing some rough averaging. So I was assuming that it would take at least three turns before this would be completed, but it could potentially be more than that. Uh, the young bronze dragon does have multi-attack. So what I did is each round, there would be two lightning strikes. I would uh, randomly choose two players that or two characters that would get hit by lightning. If anybody's wearing metal armor, then I would basically, they would be chosen or otherwise doing something that would make them more attractive to lightning, like they're lofting their great sword in the air for some reason. The damage on the lightning attack is 10, and then you can save for half. The young dragon also has a claw attack, and I just converted this into windblown debris. So while the storm's going on, twigs, boulders, rocks, other characters, who knows, is going to be flying through the air. So this would actually be an attack roll that I would make against each of the characters. This would be attack roll plus four. And if I hit, it does a set five points of damage. And then the last thing that the bronze dragon has is a repulsion breath. Fitting with the storm, that if the wind gusts to a certain level, then you basically uh, would have to make a saving throw strength DC 15, or you would get tossed through the air, taking 2d6 points of damage as you go tumbling across the ground or slamming into other objects. The way I did it is that would happen once, and then it would recharge on a 5 or a 6, so it could potentially happen again. And that is how I turned the young bronze dragon into a lightning storm. I like that. That is a really simple way to convert the dragon into a storm. I think you definitely kept the feel of the dragon through that. You definitely kept it as dangerous as the dragon. So it works. I, I think from a theoretical standpoint here at our virtual table, without actually playing it, it would absolutely work 100% of the time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Give or take 90%. Right. 
Yeah. Every 90% time. percent polling error, uh, percent, <laughs> polling error percentage. Our methods work every time, 90% of the time. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> New slogan. <laughs> there you go. Screw that fun crap. So here's here's what I'm thinking, and this popped into my head as as you were talking about the the storm encounter. One thing to consider might be how long you want the encounter to last. Because if you're thinking about fighting a monster, it's pretty easy. When the monster's dead, the monster's dead. Everyone wins. For an environmental challenge or a trap, you kind of have to think of the larger picture. Do you want the PCs to be able to overcome this environment instantly? Or do you want this to stretch out over quote unquote the entire trip or a half hour of game time or do you want the storm to be happening while the PCs are fighting goblins so when you with your idea were breaking down the number of successes to overcome the storm you might think okay what if I lower that then the storm would last longer and it would be more of a background challenge to a fight that's happening yeah that something i did consider was to make it more of a endurance like something that would happen over days or weeks in game terms uh the desert was probably the better example and for a while i was looking at doing the uh, fire breathing dragon for that very reason and then for me, this is like a set piece encounter that could that could happen at the same time that you fight the big bad guy or you fight another encounter and everybody is equally affected. I think this would be a great battle, even against maybe a bunch of goblins where there's just goblins flying through the air like crazy from the storm. Maybe they're what hits you for the damage uh, each round. Like it could be a lot of fun and very cool, but th- this is not something that's going to be like a torturous, laborious ordeal, like again, like simulating traveling a desert for days and days and days. And I honestly found this easier, which is one of the reasons why I didn't do that. I had trouble figuring out how do I make this fun and interesting, but make it last longer. Yeah, I think that's the bottom line of everything. As we are theorizing about how to hack or reskin a monster into an environmental challenge, keep it fun. We always say if you're having fun, you're doing it right. Don't make this such a chore for yourself as a GM that you are not having fun. Don't make it such a chore to run at the table that you're going to lose your mind trying to handle, okay, uh, John made this check, Sally made that check, but that one doesn't count, this one does, this does this, this does that, because then you're not going to have any fun behind the GM screen. And it should make sense to players. That's why I tried to make it simple. Just roll damage, but it's your skill damage. And that's why I think your idea of roll a skill check, I translate that to successes behind the screen. Both are really simple. Both make sense to players. We're not inventing a new thing you have to do at the table. Now, when you said this happens during a big fight, I think that's a really cool way to make small, low CR monsters more exciting. Because a lot of times we've talked about how <clears throat> when you're having a big fight, you kind of have to break it down to a couple big monsters or a giant swarm of small monsters. But those giant swarm of small monsters are so boring and simple and easy to kill, you fought them a hundred times, who cares? 
having a big giant fight of goblins and all of a sudden there's a giant storm makes those goblins more exciting. And now everyone's dealing with the same thing. And, oh, there's a goblin flying through the air to hit me in the face. That's really cool. That's awesome. And, and plus, you said also, the storm equally affects everybody. So if they are fighting a boss, you know, the necromancer off in the corner and the storm is happening at the same time, unless you put it in the story that he's controlling the storm, he is equally going to get screwed over by the attacks. So... If you use that method, potentially you could even put a little bit tougher bad guy in because he might take damage from the storm, too. Yeah, I think fiction dictates that the storm was summoned by him, but is that now out of his control? Mm. And if we had the storm lasting for weeks of game time, this could be something that the PCs have been dealing with as they've been adventuring to find the necromancer. If we go back to my method of using skill damage instead of skill checks like you have that also forces the players to make a choice on their turn are you going to make a skill check to try to survive the storm or are you going to attack the goblin that's in front of you so that could also make the environment challenge last a little bit longer and it would also increase its deadliness and danger because if you have to choose what you're doing each turn am i going to get attacked by the storm and lose endurance or am i going to get attacked by this goblin that's trying to stab me i now have a choice it's now more exciting and now there's more of a real threat i also it's more of a genre bending idea but in my head i totally see the party tank or paladin in a vortex with the BBEG and they're funneling up towards the sky, fighting as they go. Hopefully one of the good guy wins, storm ends, and then he plummets to the earth and the other characters have to save him. I I think we might have to hack another new rule to figure that one out, but (laughs) it would be really fun. (laughs) Yeah, that could be pretty, pretty epic. So, all right. Awesome. All right. So um, I'll just go ahead and I'll do my beholder and then you can uh, finish up with yours. Mine is very bare bones. And if you've already listened to now, you know exactly how this is going to work. So I took the beholder. I divided its hit points by 10, which it had a 180. So that basically gave me 15, or 18 skill check points above the DC. I wanted this one to be more difficult. So I set the DC at 15. And then uh, very bare bones. I put the trap in an octagonal room. And in the center of the room is where there is a mechanism that has to be manipulated. And that's all fluff. It could be for one group, it could be a, a, a ancient scroll that has to be translated. So you say the right words. It could be a map puzzle like Sudoku that, you know, people have to fill in the numbers. It, it doesn't matter whatever, whatever mechanism you want it to be. There is something in the center of the room that has to be done to defeat the trap. In the meantime, each round, there is a random eye in this case, it's going to be something on one of the eight walls that is going to shoot a random PC and have basically the same effect as what the Beholder would. I picked an eight-sided room because two of the eye stalks beams really don't make a lot of sense in this particular moment, and that's charm and fear. So I removed those, leaving the eight other standard ones. And I did actually take the damage from each of the eye stalks and cut it in half because the Beholder is effing deadly. And if this is something that's going to take several rounds to complete, if you 
did it straight by the book, you would just demolish the party completely outright. Again, this is a completely untested method, so it could anyways. But I was just looking at some of those damages like, holy crap, that is going to F a party up hardcore. So I'm thinking this is probably like a 10th or 11th party level trap. This will give it the ability to last a little longer and still allow there to be some cool effects where people are really getting hampered by these I-beams from the walls. And that's pretty much it. So in your idea, you are using the skill check success method. Correct. So you are essentially making these skill checks against whatever thing is in the middle of the room. A puzzle to solve, a thing to read, that kind of stuff. Correct. It would just be, you know, the rogue might disarm something, the wizard might translate something, the paladin might smash something, you know, stuff like that. Okay. So I think with the beholder, it's a very challenging monster as it is. So translating a beholder into this environmental situation is also very challenging. And in my own notes for a beholder, there are a lot of question marks and maybe statements because I don't (laughs) think I figured it out, but I think you kind of figured out part of it. I kind of figured out part of it. So maybe together we can come up with something good because with yours, I feel like the I-beam attacks might be, even though they're, they're half damage, I don't know if there's a way to overcome them. And it feels like that's just a thing that's always going to happen and the PCs are just going to sit there taking hits while they're figuring out the puzzle. Now, I'm sure, since this is a little bit more narrative-based, if a PC creatively said, well, hey, I'm going to try to climb the wall and knock out that thing that's shooting us with a fire attack, obviously you could do that. And then maybe you eliminate that one from the options or something like that. I think with the using skill checks to overcome the thing in the middle of the room, it has to be for the right party, for people who are going to think creatively. It also has to be the right challenge. There has to be enough opportunity for skill usage that there is that feeling of success. So if it's just translate the document, you know, really probably the arcane guys and maybe the cleric are going to help out. The fighter and the rogue might just sit there absorbing attacks. And and that was something I did consider and actually think could make a good moment is if the wizard is the one that's translating the spell, for for example, they can't take a disintegrate. Wizard gets hit. They're probably dead. So then you could have the paladin who's like playing like free safety back there and jumping in front of the beam to make sure they get hit rather than someone else. So they're basically absorbing the damage, giving the other characters time to translate. It actually is very similar to the bad D&D movie that we watched. Remember when they were trying to (laughs) figure out the puzzle while a couple of characters went to fight off the hordes? It has a similar feel to that. When I looked at the Beholder, I took it very similar to what you did. I broke it down into a room. I had a thing in the middle of the room. And I had things on the walls that were shooting the PCs. So we did the same exact setup. (laughs) It's just that when I broke down, I tried to keep it a little bit more crunchy than narrative. So what I said is the thing in the middle of the room is the anti-magic trap. And it actually rotates. So roll a d4 every turn and it moves to one of the four cardinal directions. And then I said the eye rays are essentially 10 
items in the room, maybe mounted up on the ceiling or in the floors, that are randomly shooting off every turn. So I, I tried to keep the operation of the monster the same, just change the focus. It's not a monster, it's now the room itself. And in my mind, this became a room that the PCs are in the dungeon, they walk in, the door slams shut behind them, and all this stuff starts happening. I took, in theory anyway, and I don't like this, this is why I have a lot of question marks on my notes here, I thought you could maybe take the hit points of the monster and split it evenly between all of the items in the room. So you have to get to each of these items and destroy it in order to move through the room. And for me, I, I, I just don't like that at all. As I'm saying this out loud and trying to explain it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Because this feels just like a dodge the attacks and smash the thing kind of trap. It's not really a creative use of the monster as an environment. But that was just what I came up with at my first pass. No, I don't think that's too far off, honestly, because I think that goes along very well with what you did the first time is making it more like an actual monster where, you know, typical D&D tropes when you're fighting the beholders, you try to take out the eye stalks so that they can't shoot beams. So that's what you're doing here is you're saying, hey, let's divide up. You go for that one. 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 Try not to get hit in the anti-magic beam so that all your cool stuff still works. And hopefully we only have six eye beams next turn instead of eight, ten. Next turn, you only have two, and then we've got this thing beat. I think it's going to feel much more like fighting a monster than it feels like a trap. But again, we're just talking about reflavoring, so there's nothing wrong with that. Okay, yeah, that does make a little bit more sense when you say it that way. It just felt very contradictory to the other conversations we've been having today, because as we were talking about the storms and the giants and the dragons, I got this idea in my head of a much larger, grander scheme. And really narrating the environment and other things that were happening. When I brought up my Beholder idea, it felt very closed and tight. And that might fit in a game in a certain point, but it just felt very different from the other conversations we had. And that's why I, I didn't like it. It was, it was the context, not the, the concept. So to make this grander, it is now 10 castles floating in the sky above our kingdom. And each castle is like a Death Star and it shoots at Ray. And the entire city is under an, or the entire country is under an anti-magic field. So our heroes have to get out of the country, fly up to the castle and take them out one by one. Hey, we just turned a monster into a campaign. Yay! Now that could actually be really fun because what what if you kept the the fear and the charm I raise as a separate castle. So now you have part of the country that is always under a fear effect and another part of the country that's always charmed. So in the middle of all this devastation, you go to city X and everyone's super happy and just chill and hanging out. And they actually will actively oppose you because they think the castle overlords are the greatest thing in the world. This might be the best idea you've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me. I really the like the bar's, pretty, <laughs> the bar's pretty low on that. <laughs> well, it's certainly better than a time traveling tower with a dagger as a key. I disagree. That was one of my best ideas ever. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I just didn't want to say it. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Do you have any uh, anything left on your side? 
the other idea I had, which I again was kind of struggling with, was turning an iron golem into a trap. Ooh. And for me, this immediately became the long hallway in every fantasy slash sci-fi drama where there's pillars crashing in from either side, there's things falling down from the ceiling, or there's the swinging pendulum traps. So I was trying to figure out how to convert that over and really embody that concept. Because for me personally, when I see that trope in a movie or a book, it's always entertaining. And it's always the, okay, well, you have to sit here and figure out the pattern and then jump through it with the right timing. But how the hell do you do that in a game? If you're in a game, tabletop, and you're using your imagination, there's no pattern to look at. There's no timing that you measure. It doesn't translate. And I've always wanted to figure out how to do that because it's so fun to try to experience as a player. I want that success of, I got it, I watched it, I did the timing, and I succeeded. But how do you do that at the game table? I don't know that I have a good answer. My answer would be retroactively, which would be very much like fate, where you say, okay, all this stuff is happening. You have to roll whatever the appropriate skill check is going to be. You know, the bard could say, well, I'm going to, like a metronome, I'm going to look for the the cadence in it, uh, the rogue could come up with their reason. The fighter says, I'm just going to smash through it, whatever. You have everybody roll, and then based on their roll, they either take a lot of damage, little damage, no damage, and then you say, okay, explain to me what that looked like in your eyes, and then allow them to be as elaborate as they want and go, okay, you know you took a little damage, so when you narrate it, narrate it as if one of them was a close call, or you got hit the first time before you fully got the pattern type of a thing. That's definitely a good way to do it. You could also expand that a little bit and present the scene piece to the players and say, okay, so to get through this hallway, you're going to have to make five skill checks. Make all of them. I will tell you whether they are successes, total failures, or kind of failures. And then you narrate overall what you did. It's not the same. It doesn't have, I don't think, that tension and that stress that looking at a hallway of smashing pillars would deliver. And and that's what I wanted. I want that physical feeling. Like when we play Dread, you see the tower and you have a tangible representation of the fear. And that translates internally to the emotion of fear. I wanted to figure out how to do that with this situation. I know there's a way to do it. I just haven't figured it out yet. It involves all your characters playing with maps and minis, having them select their own mini, laboriously paint it, and then you have a hammer at the table. (laughs) And as they miss their skill checks, you demolish their mini. Now, you know what? I bet there's someone out there that could actually build a 3D map with moving parts that actually you put the let's get the Mythbusters on this yeah yeah those, those guys could do it for us they'll they can just build a real life size one and instead of playing the game you get up and run through the gauntlet and if you succeed then your character succeeds and if you don't you're dead or you know just hit with a beanbag or something we don't want to go that far ah yes that's true 
<laughs> but you don't tell them that. You you tell them they actually die. That's how you get the tension. Yeah, and then uh, a bad movie with Tom Hanks gets made about you in the sewers. <laughs> I was actually going more for the game with uh, Michael Douglas. Oh, yeah. Or that other movie with that one guy that did the exact same thing, but with a video game that yep, Terry, that that, that Terry Crews was in. <laughs> um, <laughs> but anyway, going back, back, back through all of our tangents, my idea with the iron golem trap was to basically describe it as the slam attacks were the pillars crashing together and you could on each turn there would be basically a a check to avoid the area you were in maybe it wouldn't be a constant moving it would be a if you stand here and wait too long the thing hits you so you could still use the skill damage as i described earlier you could still very easily use the skill success method that michael talked about to try to get through these traps um the one thing about the Iron Golems that I've always liked and found a little bit odd is that they have the poison gas trap or the poison gas attack when you're talking about it as a monster. So we could very easily say in this hallway there are certain points that the poison gas spews out. So it could just be damage. It could be a saving throw to resist the effects of the gas. And if you fail, it actually makes uh, a penalty on your skill checks. Disadvantage? Exactly, or disadvantage on your skill checks. So that uh, when you're trying to avoid the pillars smashing, it's harder to do that. I didn't have a lot of good ideas on this one. I got a little bit too obsessed with trying to deliver that feel of that movie moment. So I kind of lost some of the mechanics of it. I, I still think it works as an idea. It just needs a little bit more focus and effort from me before I put it into play. All right, maybe that's something we could uh, revisit in the future. Or as always, we will throw this out to our audience. If anyone has done something similar with any monsters, or specifically the golem, uh, let us know what you did and let us know if it worked. And if not, why not? And if so, why it did or what you would do differently. And then uh, we can try to share that in a future episode. Uh, but I think that will pretty much wrap up our reskinning segment. Uh, the thing that I want to leave our listeners with is try it. You know, it's, you know, we both approached it different ways, but it, it kind of came down to the same thing as we recreated the effects or the attacks. We flavored them differently, but we used a lot of the same numbers. Or in my case, I kind of halved them because I didn't want to just completely kill my party, but I didn't have to recreate anything. I didn't just sit down and go, okay. Let's create this from scratch. I, I took existing mechanics, existing things, and I converted them with minimal effort, which probably showed, but in a way that I think would be at least a starting point that you could use to make a very cool and interesting encounter. So uh, any last words from you on reskinning, Caleb? I think reskinning is a great way to introduce something new to the table. We all know what's in the monster manual. After a few games, we all get that slight feeling of this is stagnant. I fought this guy before. I know what this attack is. So reskinning is a way to make it feel like a new game. So when you're running a game for people that have been playing D&D for years and years and years, reskinning is exciting. It throws something new and different on the table. It helps players role play a little more. It helps players get creative a little more. 
And as a GM, it gives you something more exciting to do. It lets you exercise your creative muscles a little bit. So no matter how you reskin, it's great to do. And unless you really screw up the numbers and the rules, I think it's always going to be a pretty successful, exciting thing to happen. One way or the other. I mean, every time it works 90% of the time. Exactly. Every time. All right. So let us move into our background segment. So we are going to talk about uh, some of the interesting ways that you could combine a particular class with a particular background. We threw this out on Twitter, as we are wont to do, and Kevin responded pretty quickly with a couple. And the one that stood out to me, sort of jumped out at me, I should say, was the Hermit Bard. Because I would say those are pretty well as opposite as you can possibly get. So I will say this. When you picture a hermit in the typical fantasy trope, you're going to picture the old man in the long beard and scraggly robes that lives off in the middle of nowhere. This is the random NPC that the PCs encounter as they're exploring the woods, and he gives some random piece of advice that ends up being super important. Don't eat yellow snow. Never. Okay. I had two immediate thoughts which is probably why this one jumped out to me. The first is that someone had the ability to manipulate others with their voice alone, essentially a bard. Uh, In in my type of game where this is unusual, you know, this isn't like there's 12 bards on every street corner, but this is like a truly supernatural magical effect that they don't quite understand. So they themselves have segregated themselves out into the woods for protection of other people. So in this case, they were kind of a bard first, and then they became a hermit because they did not, maybe they didn't like what they were doing with it. Maybe they abused that power. They were afraid it would corrupt them. Uh, Maybe something tragic happened. They were playing a game or a con and end up getting someone hurt or killed. So they have decided to seclude themselves. And the idea I had, the vision I had was Black Bolt from the Marvel comic uh, Inhumans where someone is afraid to use their voice because it is devastating. Obviously, in Black Bolt's a little bit different as he could shatter like, the reality with his voice, but the same concept applies that even when this person joins the party, perhaps they don't speak. You could even play them as straight rogue or straight fighter, and they don't use their bardic powers until the appropriate dramatic plot point where they are forced to. And in the ABC After School special, they learned that with control, they are able to use their powers and help others without harming, and everyone is is happy. So the opposite of that would be when you have someone who's a hermit first, they're out in the woods and wilderness or wherever, and they hear something. Maybe it's just in their own mind because they're crazy. Maybe there's a thin spot between this world and, and another reality, but they hear a song that so invigorates them, encapsulates their mind that they are now on a quest to recreate it or at least to find the true source. So they start studying music and song, trying to find what that was. You know, it could be just one perfect note. And they have now dedicated their life to searching for it. So they have left the wilderness to seek out this thing. And they kind of become a bard in that process. Those are all great ideas. I think your description of this concept is much more the NPC high-level character. Because I don't know that you could actually successfully pull that off with a first-level PC in a party. So for me, your descriptions are the either 
the bad guy because your second description immediately screams bad guy to me. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, because now, now I see this guy who's so obsessed with finding that one perfect song. He starts amassing power as a bard. He has all these followers. He starts taking over cities, trying to recreate this music. He's trying to punch through reality. He's trying to use all these resources. This immediately becomes a bad guy who might not necessarily be a bad guy. So it introduces that cool moral dilemma that you like to use in all of your games. It's a trope. Yep, it's a Michael trope. But yeah, the concepts you have are very much a large concept, which works for a big bad guy. It works for an entire campaign. It's more the, I'm writing a novel and here's my description of the character kind of set piece, which is how we think. And that's totally fine. I absolutely agree with you on the first concept. That was my immediate first idea as well. Basically someone who used to be a bard and is now a hermit through punishment, through self-imposed exile, he is the one survivor from a war, and he lives off in the woods as penance. He is the one person with knowledge that the PCs have to go hunt down and find, that kind of thing. I think that's the easiest way to combine these two backgrounds. As we've talked about in the past in these segments, when we're combining interesting backgrounds and classes, don't just connect them in a linear path. Think of the larger concepts and find that weird, interesting intersection on the Venn diagram between them. So it doesn't just have to be, I was a hermit and now I'm a bard. It can be, I was a bard and now I'm a hermit. It was, it, it, well, I risk. So that's really the only two ways to combine those. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much the two. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I guess I kind of shot myself in the foot with that example. Well, unless you're a hermit in the woods, but you're still a bard, but you only play to like forest creatures, animals or, you know, non-humanoid creatures. But that's... Eh. That would be interesting, though, if the this character was part of a druidic circle. So maybe the druids are out there in the woods because druids, stereotypically, there's a bunch of them in a circle in the woods and they have their own little community. Those are called hipsters. Yep. Or no, hippie, hippies, not hippies. hipsters. Yeah, hippies. hippies. The, <laughs> the bards are the hipsters. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, and this crazy guy living in a cave nearby happens to be able to charm all the animals and the druids think he's entertaining and funny. And then the druids all go missing and he's on a quest to find them, which is how he becomes a party member. There you go. That works. If we look at the actual player's handbook, when it, in the hermit setting, it says you live in seclusion, either in a sheltered community such as a monastery or entirely alone. So right there, there's the loophole that the quote unquote hermit is part of a society of hermits. So you have a little camp up in the mountains or in a cave or something like that. So in that scenario, if you are also a bard, you are then the entertainer of this little community. Or you could take it as not just the musician, because that's what you always think of when you think of a bard, but a lot of the bardic class features are about knowledge and skills. And I think as soon as you say bard, you immediately think of that doofy guy playing a lute, run, run, run away from the ogres, or 
hit, hit, hit the ogres. A lot of times you forget that some of the deeper class abilities are bards know everything. They can do everything. Bards can be a resource and wealth of knowledge because they study, they read, they have all this data at their fingertips. And whether it's from pure study or whether it's just, oh, I know that story. Oh, I know that story. I remember this fact from this guy that I met in this one place. Bardic knowledge can be a really powerful resource. So maybe in this clan of, of hermits in a cave or up on a mountain, the bard is actually the leader. He's the smartest guy there. He knows everything. If we go back to the concept of a hermit bard as an NPC off in the woods, you have to find him simply because he knows the, the way to get to the place of the MacGuffin you're looking for. Yeah, I think that plays well with that. Um, I don't know that a lot of people do it for for campaigns. I think it is a good idea is to do the gathering of the crew where you start with one character who has the the reason for the adventure to start and he gathers up his friends or compatriots one at a time. And then you have the, well, I know a guy that can help us, but it's not going to be easy to get him. Uncle Caveman. And then, then you have to go seek out the commune and then you meet Uncle Caveman and you have to convince him to come along with you, which is, again, why he's part of the party rather than an NPC, which, again, does kind of sound like what we're flavoring them as, but they could be player characters with the right introduction or the right motivations. Exactly. And we could also take this a little bit different method if we want to make this a, a PC. There's been a secluded village for years. And a coming-of-age ritual is that you have to leave your city and experience the world around you. So now we have a first-level character who was a hermit his or her entire life. This person is now venturing off into the world, and the only thing that he can bring with him is his music, is his knowledge, is his unique way to interact with people around him. Isn't that that Amish thing, Ramshaker? Rumspringa. That's the thing. Yeah. yeah. Which that could be your entire campaign. What if every PC is from this village and you are literally throwing them into a world that they know nothing about? That's actually a good device for explaining to the players things their characters should know is their characters don't know it either. So they're from like a lost continent or lost society. So as they meet something and they're like, well, you don't actually know that the duke is this duke and that he's you know blah 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 so you have it allows you to put in exposition that doesn't always make sense but if i'm a character that lived in this world for 20 years before i go adventuring i should know where the what the next town is i should know uh what a troll does but a lot of times we don't have that knowledge as players but our characters do exactly and if we want to play a very michael game of zero level nobodies who are experiencing the world around them and then suddenly they start being able to do things they couldn't do before i think that's a great introduction it's a trope there's our other t-shirt <laughs> nice awesome well again as always uh we will throw that out to our audience if you have successfully used the bard hermit before or if you have an idea or a concept that we missed or didn't touch on please let us know as always, you can reach us on Twitter and on Facebook and on Google+. Pretty much anywhere you go, if you type in the RPG Academy and something comes up, 
it's going to be us. Uh, we are actively trying to get people to use our forum. So please consider logging in there and leaving some comments on either the show itself or on the forum. Uh, but really, just any way that you want to get a hold of us or talk to us, we really, really appreciate that. And then one way that you can really help us out is to leave us a review on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. I know every podcast that you listen to at some point says, hey, if you like our show, give us a review. There's a reason for that. The more reviews you have and the quicker that you get them, that's kind of how iTunes rates shows as well as by number of subscribers. So if we get a bunch of ratings and reviews, then we will rocket up the charts for a few weeks and more people will likely stumble upon us. And then also if someone says, hey, I've never heard of RPG Academy, you click on it and it has 4,000 five-star reviews, they're much more likely to listen not only to the first episode, but to a couple because they're probably like, well, what am I missing? So they're more likely to give us a little bit longer of a chance in their ear holes and maybe we will latch on and never let go. So with that in mind, we do have a new five-star review from iTunes that we would like to read. So Caleb, take it away, sir. Alrighty, so this review is from Eric C. in the USA, and Eric writes, Really hits it all. Sound advice from veteran gamers for veterans and noobs alike has really matured over time. Well, thank you very much, Eric. I appreciate reading that. Thank you for your review and your time listening and writing. If we missed any reviews that are out there, we try to go through everything and catch them. We apologize. We will find them eventually and read them all. So if you left one and we didn't read it yet, I'm sorry. Let us know. We will find it and I'll read it. And with that, uh, this has been Michael. And this has been Caleb. And we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast, the flagship program of the RPG Academy Network. If you enjoy what we do here, then please check out therpgacademy.com and visit our site partners for additional entertainment and gaming advice. We do this out of love for the hobby and for you, our fans. The podcast and site content will always be free for you to enjoy and utilize. But we do have expenses related to the show. If you'd like to help out in any way, please visit patreon.com slash vrpgacademy and check out the rewards we are providing for your monthly pledges. We use all funds that come in to improve the show and give you better content and quality. And if you don't have the coin to spend, don't worry. You can still help us out in many ways. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes and or Stitcher Radio. You can leave us a five-star review. Also, if you clear your cookies and you visit Amazon or the DriveThruRPG site through our portal, we get a small percentage of what you pay, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just like any RPG, our site works best with open lines of communication. We love talking with our listeners about everything. Please contact us with any questions, concerns, and comments that you have. We also love to hear feedback and experiences from your own games. You can email us via podcast at therpgacademy.com and reach us on social media, such as Facebook and Google Plus at the RPG Academy. But Twitter is usually the fastest way to reach us. You can find my favorite co-host, The Caleb G, at The Caleb G. And you can find my favorite co-host, Michael, at The RPG Academy. 
Thanks for listening. And as always, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. <laughs>